Good morning, diners and indoors. We're having, we had a long spell of all of this, right? We're endure, we're enduring. We're enduring. Just, just in case you're wondering what we're complaining about, on the on the menu has been suffering from having its house painted for more, <laughs> more than more than two weeks. It's which is, terror, but it's everywhere. It's more than flesh and blood can stand, as my aging mother would have said. But, but, but we're here in the studio regardless, and today today we're looking at very various aspects of the drinking game, yes. starting out with a fascinating book with a fascinating title. What is it, love? Yeah, Wish I, Fork. I love, I love this title, but it is Wish Fork. I use for my bourbon. <laughs> so, 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 what so, so here, do I use with my bourbon? I love so, it. So here's the answer. Yes, yeah, so whoever <laughs> came up with this title deserves a Pulitzer. The title of this book, listeners, is Which Fork Do I Use With My Bourbon? I love it. <laughs> the authors are Peggy Noah Stevens and Susan Ragler. It's Riegler, Susan? It's Riegler. Riegler, okay. Well, it's, if it's German, it should be Riegler. But okay, it's, we'll do Riegler. My, my misguided forebears thought it sounded less German during World War I. Oh, that's right. Okay. <laughs> Anyhow, but the, this book was, it was sort of a surprise when I got it because it was kind of not what I expected. Um, it's subtitled Setting the Table for Tastings, food pairings, dinners, and cocktail parties. And um, so that basically it's a very visual book, which um, we're not doing video. It's a shame. Uh, we're doing audio. Um, but I, I think what your backgrounds, both of you, are so impressive. Who wants to recite, not bragging, but just telling us what the backgrounds are? Let's, let's start out with uh, Peggy. Who's in the Bourbon Hall of Fame, by the way? Go ahead, Peggy Noah Stevens. Sure. Well, I have really started my career in the hotel business, uh, and I worked for Hyatt Hotels, where I felt like I kind of cut my teeth on hospitality and entertaining and planning events. Uh, and then I worked 17 years for Brown Foreman Corporation, which is a spirits uh, company, and became a master bourbon taster there. Uh, and then went on to create my own company, Peggy No Stevens and Associates, and I helped distilleries all over um, build their destinations and do flavor profiles and tastings. And all along that time, I was always fascinated with food pairings, and so that's why a lar- large part of the book is about bourbon and food. Okay, now Susan Riegler. Yes. Tell us about you. Well, I spent uh, close to 15 years as the restaurant critic and beverage writer for the Louisville Courier Journal. I was. Yeah, that's, uh, I was. I used to be a restaurant critic too. What a job, huh? <laughs> it was a great gig, um, and I will say that I was. I was shocked to once again have a grocery bill when I was no longer doing that job. Uh, yeah, except I, except that you know you you always ended up at least I did with a huge cleaning clothes cleaning bill. <laughs> I was a little tidier than that, but that's all right. <laughs> uh, plus, everything is washable. I, I only wear cotton. So, um, 
Where were we? Yes, I was uh, the restaurant critic and beverage writer for the Courier Journal for almost 15 years, and during that time was the time that beverage that uh, bourbon started to make its comeback um, on the national scene, on Kentucky and national scene, and I was, was writing about uh, bourbon, bourbon cocktails and reporting on the opening of various distilleries, including Woodford Reserve, where Peggy worked, uh, as uh, destinations, as tourist attractions. So I've been writing about bourbon for um, more than a quarter century, which I'd like to say is a lot before other people found out that bourbon was cool. Well, I mean, I must say that Peter is is in love with bourbon, and uh, uh, particularly well, he'll tell you about his preferences. Um, but I, I had to mention that we're just currently negotiating. We're going to do a, um, a, a special um, program um, with Fred Minnick, who did the forward to your book. We're going mm-hmm. to interview yeah. him about um, efforts in the uh, beverage industry, the spirits industry, uh, to combat uh, uh, racism and, and encourage diversity. So, Interestingly Fred's enough, a good friend f- of both of ours. Yeah, well, he's taking a pause in his podcast. You know, the one he does with the music and the sipping of the bourbon, and he's going to do a, a program on um, all of their efforts to to try to uh, e- bring equality to the uh, and diversity to the spirits industry, which, and we're just writing about the beard society is trying to do this also with the whole hospitality scene. Okay, so we got that out. Can I say something? Uh, yes. I, I, wondered, I, I, wondered, I wondered if I was allowed to. Well, I wanted to add something else to say is that I immediately noticed Peg's um, maiden name, Noah. No. no, because the the only bourbon tasting that I've ever been to was uh, conducted by um, uh, Booker. Booker Noah, uh, and and we we had no food whatsoever. <laughs> we had all these little glasses already, the samples poured, so that when I walked into the room, the fumes made me dizzy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was actually that can happen. That's why we do food pairing. <laughs> It was actually in a Hyatt hotel. Maybe, maybe some. Oh, it was in a Hyatt. Yeah, yeah, okay, that's good. interesting. And, I and had Mrs. great Mrs. pleasure. And Mrs. Booker was there. Of, uh, sorry. We talked to Mrs. Had, Booker about about, about I, I, barrel I, I chips, br- and they 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 sent they sent us a lifetime supply of of bourbon barrel chips to use <laughs> for barbecue, smoking on the grill. They're wonderful. Uh, well, so, but that was the only bourbon tasting that I've ever been to, and there was no food. It's so, fr- it's so frustrating when I have something I want to say, and you won't let me say it. Go, 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 go. <laughs> Spill away. You know, the fir- first, first time I was ever in Louisville, the, I was there on a business trip, and the local guys who were my host picked pick me up at the airport, and the first stop was Calumet Farms. Hmm. And the, ne- the next, the next stop was a very fine restaurant. I can't remember its name. And they introduced me to Woodford Reserve, and they said this is the best bourbon there is. He loves the Peter. And and the interesting thing is, subsequent to that, we interviewed, I think it's Mr. Henderson, 
who was who was the oh, guy Lincoln. who yes, that's, who, that's who started who Angels Envy. Taster. Yes, uh, Lincoln. I worked at Woodford Reserve when it first started, and Lincoln Henderson that, yes. was the man that trained me to become a master taster. Now, <laughs> you, you, the reason we interviewed him was because we found out about Angels Envy. His his son had started it off, and then talked his father into working with him on <laughs> on launching a new bourbon. That's right. He, he passed away, sadly he passed away not too long ago, right? He did, several years ago, and he, he really, truly was an icon in the industry and a joy to work with, frankly. So, but this book is, is it's a whole new idea for me because I've never had, now I did drink, um, what's the name of that bourbon? Pappy, Pappy Pat, Van Winkle. Pappy Van Winkle, I, I did drink that when I was at Husk in um, in, um it wasn't, was it? Charleston. Which, which was it in Charleston or was it the one in, in uh, Kentucky? All right. Anyhow, um, you're Nashville. Okay, so anyhow, at Husk in Charleston, the wine they had for the dinner at Husk was so bad that I I took what was drinkable there, and it happened to be <laughs> hard luck. I, it was packed in Winkle Bourbon, so I, I did a whole tasting of, of a meal. Drinking bourbon, which I had never done in my life. Julian I was love there. It. Julian was there, yeah. and he, he's he's a very laid back kind of character. Yeah, I know Julian oh, yeah. was is uh, very good friends with Sean Brock at, at Husk, and I know they've done right. a lot. Right. Of yes, but Sean, I guess, went uh, had an intervention or something. He doesn't drink anymore, and he sold his his uh, bourbon collection. He had a fabulous bourbon collection. He bought some kind of a New space age racing car or something. Did you know that? No, that makes me sad. But there it is. Yeah. yeah well, I didn't know when any of that was going on, and I thought I knew him, but you never know anybody. <laughs> Sometimes I think somebody, somebody has to drink it, right? You only drink it. You only drink it once. Well, let's get back to this book now. It's news to me that there's this whole etiquette thing. Um, and all this tasting party thing, uh, it's just amazing. The, the spreads are gorgeous. And I didn't know that this was something that was going on. Tell us a little bit about like, planning the perfect party and how does this come about. Um, well, I think that's actually why Susan and I felt compelled to write this book is because in the bourbon industry, what we've done so well is to make bourbon very approachable and friendly and not have too many etiquettes, if you will, uh, surrounding what to do or not to do. Because, you know, the wine industry did that for years and sometimes alienated, you know, consumers. So it's really kind of a which fork do I use with my bourbon? Uh, is, I'm glad you like the title. Uh, it's I really a play it. on words to, to ensure people that, yes, Susan and I might be experts, yes, you know, we have certain styles and traditions of doing things, but let us pass them on to you so that you can do these in your own home and create your own environments with your friends. And, Susan, I think you have a beautiful way of talking about everybody's individual style, so if you want to add to that. I'm sorry to repeat that, if you would, Peggy. I said I think you have a beautiful way of talking about, you know, how we were trying to create people's individual styles of entertaining. Oh, Exactly. You absolutely do not have to copy what we've done in the book. 
you can simply use it as an outline and say, well, what dishes do I have at my disposal? What are, what's the glassware that I have? Maybe I can take a couple of their recipes for some hors d'oeuvres or maybe a, a food, on, maybe an entree for dinner or, or lunch. But also, um, I, it could be for somebody who's just becoming familiar with bourbon and they want to do a very basic tasting and pairing, or it could be for somebody who's been enjoying bourbon for a very long time and is mm -hmm. interested like you are, and into um, in, into finding out about more about food pairings. Well, you have so many, um, I don't know what you call them here, you, you say the vintage um, adornments, <laughs> accessories. Oh. I oh, want the pig with the toothpicks. <laughs> yes. Okay. Ninety-nine percent of that is Peggy. So uh, yeah, actually, my, my style is a little more late relative than Pe than Peggy's. But see, again, it's just it's a starting point. It's a jumping off point for it is, people and, to and a lot in their home. Yeah, and a lot that you see in the book, the the tablescapes that we did, and some of the what I call props, right? That you have a lot of these people truly have things around their house that they can use and absorb. It's just really thinking about the theme of the party that you're trying to create. And I do enjoy going to vintage stores and getting very inexpensive um, items, whether they're culinary-related or bourbon-related, you know, just to use as accent pieces for presentation. Well, they're beautiful. And, and you have all these little tips and planning about planning the party and, and, uh, and things that seem to pretty straightforward that maybe nobody's ever thought about it. like don't don't have a, a vase of of um, roses near the the bourbon tasting table because <laughs> it's <laughs> the smell I mean, <laughs> but I wouldn't even think of putting flowers out for it you see you did now l let's let's make sure that because we have two real experts on the phone here let's let's make sure we understand what bourbon really is so that people can win bets in bars or whatever, wherever they will have more knowledge about bourbon than anybody else. Because we had the opportunity recently to interview some people who make bourbon in Utah. Mm -hmm. Hi, Wes. It's a, it's a ranch called something, I can't remember the name of it. Now. I can't remember the name of it either. And I, and I thought, this is bizarre. You can't, you, I thought bourbon had to come from Kentucky. And that's really not true. No, it's not. So, so why don't why don't we have the expanded definition, so that so that people will once and for all know what the right answer is? Well, in 1964, uh, Congress declared bourbon an exclusively American product, and so mm -hmm. while historically 95% uh, or so of the bourbon made in the United States is made in Kentucky. It could be made in any state in the Union, and in fact, it now is. Every well, Mictors Mick, Mick, started on Pennsylvania. It, and it was a rye distillery, uh, and they still make rye, but uh, historically it came from Pennsylvania, and the distillery closed many years ago, and some investors bought the brand name and, in fact, some of the original equipment, and they have uh, restored the brand in Kentucky where they make uh, both. Yeah, and we've interviewed somebody involved with that. I can't remember. Ma Ma Malioko or something like that is the name. Joe Malioko, yes. Yeah. Joe. 
Okay, so tell us then what what makes it a bourbon. Peggy, you want to take that one? Well, sure. It's actually a government definition. And, you know, again, bourbon does have to be made in the U.S., uh, but it's just a couple little sidebars to it. It's 51% corn as the predominant grain. The rest can be what we call the mash bill, and that's up to the master distiller, you know, to decide how much wheat or malted barley or rye that they wish to use. But you have to have at least 51% corn. Uh, It has to be uh, distilled at a certain temperature. Uh, It enters the barrel um, after distillation. And when it enters the barrel, you know, we always like to say at least two years uh, or else we call that headache whiskey. But um, if it's a four-year-old, um, or higher, you know, then you don't have to put an age statement. Well, you know, I like that where you talk about corn. I like that segment in the book where you talk about how how it's natural to Kentucky because corn grows there so well. And then you, you drew um, a parallel between that and other uses for corn that are endemic to the region. That's right, and that's why Kentucky became famous, actually, for making bourbon, because we had everything conducive to making great whiskey, you know, very fertile soil for corn. We had white oak wood, and, you know, we have to use, as part of that definition, new charred white oak barrels uh, in order to make a bourbon. Uh, And so we just had the hot summers, the cold winters, which was great for cycling whiskey in in a warehouse. Uh, so that's how we became pretty famous, just because of our cultural uh, relevance. We had all the indigenous ingredients. Now, somebody somebody came up with a great new idea, and I can't remember exactly what it was, which was to to restrict the the quantity of of certain kinds of brands. I guess brands of bourbon and. Uh, I know Booker No was one of one of those, and they came up with this idea of single single barrel bourbon. All right, that's not really a restriction. That's just sort of a different designation. I mean, okay. they came up small batch, which really has no batch, uh, legal okay. meaning. Uh, there are small batch bourbons, and a small batch can be whatever the distiller calls it. It might be two barrels that are mingled and bottled, or it could be a hundred barrels that are mingled and bottled because. If you're talking about a product like uh, Jim Beam, which is the best-selling bourbon in the world, hundreds of barrels go into a batch. So a small batch is what the distiller wants to call it. On the other hand, a single barrel is that the bottling does exclusively come from one barrel. And there's usually information on the label of that bourbon about the barrel, its number, and its provenance and that sort of thing. And that, that turned out to be a pretty pretty good marketing move, right? It did. It was part of trying to position bourbon as a premium product very much as the Scots were positioning single malt at about the same time as being a premium product as opposed uh-huh, to the traditional yes. blended products. Now, which, which of you has the dark hair and which of you has the light hair? Well, I have the dark hair, I guess, Susan. Yes, I have the silver hair, Anne, yes. Oh, I'm getting that. (laughs) I just started that with the the COVID stuff and the quarantine. (laughs) I'm getting silver. But I I just, I I, I saw um, 
who has the uh, the green it looks like um plastic ring necklace very nice necklace is oh, that peggy yeah yeah okay i thought it was for some reason you look like a peggy that's my home actually that picture was taken on my front porch when we were entertaining uh a good 50 plus women from the bourbon women association i did an event on my back patio and a bourbon tasting for them yeah, well, you have a lot of great accessories, glassware, and china, too, I'll tell you. Especially the Thank vintage you. ones. Love them. Your cocktail. Thank you. You have a section called setting up a bourbon bar. What does that involve? I mean, I just thought it was bourbon, and that was it. Well, it's interesting because I think the friend, Susan, feel free to chime in on this one um, because you helped, of course, with this. Uh, the first thing that we ask people to do is don't worry about the bourbon yet. Worry about the real estate in your house because uh, it's kind of like beachfront property where the bar goes because everybody's going to gravitate around the bar. And when you put the bar in the kitchen, let's say, everybody ends up in the kitchen and then it's too crowded waiting for a drink, trying to get the food out, you know, of your kitchen. And so we always say put it in a nice location that's not going to get in the way of your other environment. Um, and so that's the first thing is location. And then also we arm the consumer with what kind of barware you might want to put, you know, on the actual bar, like a cutting board for garnish and um, a muddler if you're doing anything that requires, you know, like an old-fashioned sugar cubes. You know, so it's really all the accoutrements that will keep you from running back and forth uh, to the kitchen, and your guests can be really serviced. Okay, so you get it all laid out. You get it set up. You have the accoutrement. Um, then three, how to do a bourbon tasting. Ah, yes. Well, and uh, and we both specialize in that. I mean, obviously, Peggy, having been a master taster, and I do all kinds of private tastings and and, in fact, public tastings for people, uh, which Peggy Yeah, and I your picture's in here, too, Susan, on this beautiful silver hair. I see it. <laughs> <laughs> You're sniffing. Yeah, I, I'm sniffing, yes. Uh, thank you. Actually, I didn't think that was a great hair day, but that's all right. You know, none of us <laughs> are. Um, well, yes, I think the, with the basic tasting, again, as I mentioned, you don't have to be elaborate. You could even start with just two bourbons, and I would recommend something like two with contrasting mash bills, maybe a, a traditional bourbon that has rye as its secondary grain and another bourbon that has uh, wheat as its tradition as its secondary grain. And that's a really nice way to just start in a very basic level to comparing bourbons, compare and contrast. You know, Virginia Woolf wrote that you should always compare a book to the best of its kind and I think you can do the very same thing with whiskey. You know, um, you just start to compare and contrast, and you find out what you like and what you think is good and what you don't like so much. I, I was very amused when Make, Maker's Mark change, changed the proof level of their bourbon to from from what was it, 86 down to 80, and the no, cu- customers, uh, ac- customers across the world rebelled. <laughs> they had to change their minds. No, no, it was 90 down to 80-something. Yeah. Is that what it was? Yeah, it was, it was the worst marketing decision since New Coke, I think. <laughs> well, you know, that the, the, the one that we had 
from Utah, you said, Rabbit? Yes. That was really strong. I think that was High West. Is that not the one that you That sounds right. I thought the name started with an F. Not Screwball, that's a vodka. No, no, I mean, I think, I think that, I think that the, the, the name of the ranch and therefore the name of the product, I thought it started, I thought it started with an F, something mm-hmm. like Frey or Fry. Oh, there is Frey. We have a Frey that, somewhere. It, it, it was quite delicious, by the way. I mean, yeah. you, if, if, you haven't, if you haven't tried it, you should expand yourself. The, and get the yourself Frey Ranch. They have they have um, a whole farm, right? Yes, I think so. Yes, try that one. F R E Y. It's really good. Interesting. Okay, yeah. so now you have this set up, and and when you're going to taste, what do you look for? Well, I would say you know when I actually get to the tasting piece, I look for complexity uh, in a whiskey. So. Any time that any type of whiskey can take me what I call around the flavor wheel, you know, that I taste fruit notes, I taste spice, I taste savory, um, you know, herbal, smoke, earthy. You know, any time that I can identify all of these different flavors around a flavor wheel, that to me is a sign of a quality bourbon Uh, because the master distiller has really thought through how all of these flavors are going to come together in the end. Now, this is a very crass question, but do you spit when you do this like wine people do? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to say what a waste of of good whiskey. Well, and here's the point. There there are two things. Uh, One is that it isn't tasting. I mean, you are taking very small sips. Uh, and as the former master distiller at Four Roses, Jim Rutledge, always said, there is no way to judge the finish if you don't swallow the whiskey. Yeah. And so you you can't get that component. You especially can't get that very important component of that warming as it goes down your throat and into your chest that we like to call the Kentucky hug. Ah, that's what it's called. That's very cute. <laughs> very good. Now, um, I will, even in Utah, if I'm doing the Kentucky hug, I don't know. <laughs> when I do a spirits judging, because uh, Susan and I are judges at different competitions and such, you know, and you're tasting flight after flight after flight, you know, of whiskeys, then I do do the swirl and spit method, you know, just to keep my senses alert. Yeah, I guess so, you know. Different uh, kind of routine, yeah. No, no, um, casual tasting. Once you move along here, though, I mean, there's, I'm just trying to indicate how many bases this book touches. Uh, you move on to food pairings and cooking with bourbon. So you actually have recipes in here. Yes. We do. We never want it to be a cookbook. You know, that's mm-hmm. been done. And we feel, though, that we want it just to share some of our favorites that we've entertained our guests with. Uh, that are relatively easy to prepare, and some incredible cocktails, um, many of which are from our friends, like Heather Wibbles, um, Joy Perini, which was one of the best mixologists I ever knew. And uh, so we just kind of did a little collection of our own favorites. But it certainly is not a cookbook, but you will find really delightful recipes. They're very pretty, too, your presentations. 
I think uh, presentation makes food taste better. Yes, I think so too. Um, what else do you need to know to do one of these? You know, what happens in this chapter five with the advanced pairings for the bourbon food fanatic? What do you do with this? really want to take a deep dive. And, yeah, and so for example, just to do a food pairing, uh, you might pick a simple food, you know, like nuts or cherries or uh, crackers or pretzels, you know, just something very easy. With advanced food pairings, you're starting to create menus uh, and pairing entrees, pairing desserts, pairing uh, appetizers. So it's a little bit tougher um, to wrap your head around until you break down all the flavors of those particular dishes. So that's why we said advanced food pairing. Well, that's another pretty section, though, I must say. Again, thank you. Yeah. So, um, and you even have tips like seasonal cocktails paired with um, seasonal foods and things that I just never even thought of applying. I mean, we, we would generally approach anything that way, but to think of applying it to a bourbon tasting, I wouldn't have thought about it until I got this book. So you do alert people pretty well to the kinds of places we can go with this. Good. Well, you know, it didn't make sense to serve a tropical pineapple and bourbon cocktail in dead winter, you know, because it's <laughs> out of season for us. Uh, and that, that, to me, a lot of people don't think about. And also on the cooking with bourbon section, you know, great chefs cook with the best olive oils, the best balsamic vinegars, the best salts. Uh, and so we feel that you should cook with great bourbon, you know, better quality. It'll be a better outcome for your dish. Yeah, I'm looking at this. You, you even have, you talk about the beaten biscuits. And, and I'm, I'm looking at this spread of of uh, country ham and beaten biscuits, and I got into a great deal of trouble um, at a party uh, to, to get the host from Southern, and they had a whole spread, and, and I was watching my carbs, so I took the ham out of the biscuits, and I got scolded. I got caught and scolded. caught outside this region, and they are quite a treat. So, yeah, you should have been scolded. I think that was very appropriate. <laughs> yeah, no, I know a, a little bit about it. Our, our kids lived in uh, South Carolina for a while. Uh, and, uh, and, again, I mean, hanging out with um, Marcy and, and uh, Lawn was pre- pretty much fun. They had wonderful parties, including their annual derby party, uh, which is great fun. Was, well, the great Booker No made his own beaten biscuits. He cured his own country ham. He had his grandmother's beaten biscuit machine. Oh, yeah, that's the machine you need. Cure of beaten biscuits and country ham, which went beautifully with his bourbon, of course. Now, um, what what's the name of that company, Rabbit? We used to get the, the Broad, uh, Broadbent. Broadbent. Oh, yeah. We know Broadbent, sure. Yeah, they, yeah. They, have a, they, have a big, they have a big auction every year, don't they? They have a, an they, extra they special ham, and then, and then they raffle it off for a large amount of money. Thousands of dollars. Right. 
Yeah, that's, that's the, the Kentucky State Fair. State Fair. Mm-hmm. Is, that yeah. what, is that what it is? Okay. I, 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 we, we used to be on their mailing list. I don't know why we're not on it anymore. I don't know why. We used to always have a freeze before that stuff. We don't have it <laughs> anymore. Oh, that was good stuff. <laughs> the cup bacon was wonderful. So, well, what else, Rabbit, do you want to know about this from the book? Are you asking me, love? Yeah, I am. Okay, well, well, let, let's have our audience get their pencils handy because they, the one recipe that's vital that they get for September now is a mint julep. Yeah, right. So, so, why, so why don't we get the official young lady's description of what goes into a mint julep? Sure, Susan, you want to take that one? Sure. Uh, first of all, the easy thing is that mint grows like a weed, so you can grow your own mint, and you can easily get some now and have it in a little pot, and uh, don't plant it in your yard because it will take over, but if you plant it in... Uh, I know, I have it taken over my garden already. <laughs> yeah, it, it will do that, but in fact, that's why until they became uh, so prized for uh, secondary uh, barreling in for things, uh, for whiskeys like scotch and other spirits, rum. Uh, we had a lot of sawn and half bourbon, used bourbon barrels around here that people would grow their mint in, even the planters. But, uh, but still, you can just use a big pot. And, of course, the uh, you don't want it to be too super minty uh, because, you know, it just doesn't taste like the mint and you don't get the bourbon. And as my... My, my late friend and colleague, Joy Perini, with whom I wrote a couple of bourbon cocktail books, always emphasized you want to taste the base spirit in your cocktail, whatever it is. So you don't want the mint to overwhelm. Well, thank you for that, because I thought it was just in my head. I have two patches of totally different mints, and one I don't use because it's too strong. And, and, then, and I didn't know what the difference was. Well, it's, it's usually a, a spearmint um, um, family member that you use. Uh, Kentucky Colonel is a variety that we really favor, but you might not be able to get that everywhere. But for the, for the uh, mint julep, you want to use an ounce of simple syrup, which you make by boiling up um, equal parts sugar and water and if you have a microwave and you have a Pyrex container or, you know, a cup or a measuring cup or a beaker, you can even just do it in the microwave. You don't have to boil it on the stove. And you let that cool. And then you want to use um, a couple of fresh mint leaves. We say three to five in our recipe. just depends on your taste. And three ounces of bourbon and some crushed ice. And you can put these in either a tall glass. It would be great to have a silver julep cup, but, you know, not everybody happens to have one of those on hand. And you want to uh, put the uh, simple syrup and the bourbon and the mint leaves in your glass. You muddle the leaves a little bit. Again, you don't have to really crush them up because you don't want it to be too super minty. Just enough to be refreshing. Uh, And once that's all... Nicely mixed up, add some crushed ice. You can swirl it around a little bit, stick a straw in it, put a sprig of mint for garnish, and you have your mint julep. Well, now you and have then, it, and then, you, and then you sing, right? Then you sing, right? 
Can you sing my old Kentucky home? You know, you're usually do, in a horrible you know, singing mood my... after you finished your julep. Yes. <laughs> well, I will tell you that is truly my very favorite part of the Kentucky Derby. I have attended well over 25 derbies in my lifetime, and it's when everybody around the world who comes in for derby or they're watching it on TV, everybody's a Kentuckian for the day when they sing that. It's it's yeah. wonderful experience. Well, I mean, we used to have, when, when Marcy and Lon had their derby party, they used to import a, um, was it a three-person band from um, from Louisville, I think. And and they played. They had a big house, and they played, and and it was it was a grand time. I'm going to miss those. We just played and we drank, and then we played. The yeah. Some more, and we drank some more. <laughs> yes. so, well, listen. Um, everybody now should go out and get this book in time for the fall occur- uh, event when they finally stage the um, this year's Kentucky Derby. And it's called Which Fork Do I Use With My Bourbon by Peggy Noah Stevens and Susan Riggler. And and also thanks to Fred Minnick for doing the foreword because he's a dear guy. So ladies, have, have a good time and much success with your book. Thank you. Well, thank you. You all have been delightful to talk to. <laughs> we had a good time. <laughs> Even without the bourbon, we had a good time. <laughs> Not much doubt those Kentucky ladies have a good time, huh? <laughs> so uh, anyway, let's 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 move along. Still, still with drinking our hearts. And what's this one called, my dear? I, I was really going to discuss with Fred Minnick and Andrea Merriweather. That's the one. Okay. Well, yeah. We just, well, we we've known Fred Minnick for years now. We'll just put a little. He's Mr. Bourbon. We'll just put a little. Music in here before we go there. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. We're back with, with, with more, with more bourbon. And an interesting take on what what's needed for the whole world of bourbon to be fair and more reasonable. Is that what you'd say, sweetheart? You know, we're talking about diversity. Diversity, okay. Everybody's talking about right. the country. Right. Well, diversity is coming up. Then. Uh, yes, well, we're, we're talking to um, a, an old buddy, <laughs> I don't know, Fred Minnick, and also uh, a new one, Andrea Merriweather. And um, I got sort of a wake-up call on a project that um, that Fred is working on, and, and I thought it would be great to explore it on, on the menu. Um, and basically, we're going to be talking about bringing diversity to the spirits industry, which is um, a major undertaking. But before we do that, could I ask Andrea, could you give us just sort of a, yeah, an elevator speech as to your association with this subject and what you do, and also then Fred? Yes. 
My name is Andrea Merriweather. I'm a tourism consultant from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, also a consultant on historical curation surrounding bourbon and food and the African American influence in the spirits industry. Huh. I'd like to know that myself to tell you the truth. Now, you're writing a book, or did you do you did something a webinar? So I've been traveling to historic spaces doing lectures about African-American influence within the spirits industry, and I'm also working on a residency program with Historic Locust Grove in Louisville, Kentucky. Wow. You, you, you've got an interesting field there, a wide open field, I might say, too. Anyhow, let's, let's, how about you, Fred Minnick? We've talked to you how many times before? <laughs> You're our bourbon uh, guy. It's my... Yeah, this this might be our fifth or sixth conversation on the, <laughs> on the menu. So I feel I feel privileged to be able to come back so often and talk about things I love. Um, you know, I'll say I'll say like I've been I've been trying to you know bring awareness to this in the spirit industry for for a long time. You know, my book Whiskey Women was kind of the you know really the first right. like you know national. Um, look into like the historic past of women and whiskey, and I've been writing about enslaved people in um, in the spirits industry for for almost ten years. Um, and it's and it's you know the, the brands have kind of like you know tried to you know ignore it for you know as long as they can. And there's one thing you know the the past is the past, um, but you know in the in that quest to build diversity, you know, the past comes up. And, and so like, I've just, you know, in everything I do, I've, I've tried to make sure, you know, there's a spotlight put on it, but without, but without like saying like, uh, you know, my, my goal is to like, is to develop uh, programming and things, but without saying like, um, you know, pointing out the diversity, but just just to have it. So, like at our panels of bourbon and beyond, you know, it was it was very diverse. It was not a, um, it was it was focused on getting quality people on the stage, but also you know trying to give people opportunities for you know who may not you know be on the you know the stage unless someone. Ask them, you know, because the spirit industry is very closed. It's a very closed world. Yeah, let's let's and start with that. Let's let's start yeah. with exactly where are we? I mean, you say it's closed. I mean, it's practically more than closed, right? Yeah, I mean, for a long time it was the Good Old Boy Network, right? Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, ran by a, a handful of people in the conglomerates. And if you weren't a Good Old Boy, you didn't you didn't get in that you didn't get in those conversations. And yeah. but uh, that's changing, and I think, it's changed, I think Andrea huh? is one of the. It, it's it's not changed, but it's changing. Um, you know, ten years ago, you know, we we didn't have a we didn't have an African American master distiller in the United States. Um, now we do. We didn't have we didn't have a lot of brands, you know, that even, you know, proactively hired. Uh, black people or had a diversity commission and, and and it's like look I'm not I don't belong to a brand I just I'm just a writer but mm-hmm. and I look at I, I look at Andrea to me Andrea is like one of the one of the bright young amazing talents 
in the spirits business, and, you know, she's pushing for diversity and everything. But I say that not because she um, is a young black woman and has happened to have shared many of uh, bourbons with me, but I say that because she is talented, you know. Yeah, well, she was the first one you mentioned. You and I have been throwing around the subject for a while, but but you hit on it and then you all warmed up to the subject um, when you, you thought of bringing her into the conversation. Well, and I think it's I think it's important to to listen to what she's doing and where she's going with things because I feel like if if, if the people listen to this model, they try to follow it. I think everything can change. And 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 really, I I, I was I would really love for Andrea, you know, to talk about all the things that she's doing. Uh, I mean, I've done a few things, but she is man, she's bringing she's bringing a, a, what I'd like to say is a soft pillow sledgehammer. To the conversation, you know, she's she's banging down the doors, but then when she opens it, she's like, "All right, here here's how it is. Here's a nice pillow. Let's sit down and have a conversation." That's to me, that's Andrea. That's why I think she's she's great. Put up the mask, Andrea. I mean, you've had to really delve into the history there to find to get where we are, right? So I'll tell you, this journey was really um, by accident even, almost, I would say. Um, I I was hired to do a historical curation project, and I really just allowed my curiosity to lead me. I really wanted to not only find interesting and poignant uh, parts of history that celebrated my culture, but something that could bring us all together. Um, and history does that. And food and beverage also is a beautiful social agent, as I call it, to bring unlikely people together. And I took uh, the historical curation project that I started, and I and I said, let's not stop here. Let's let's expound upon this. And I said, you know, what do we really need that takes care of two needs at once? We need something that preserves history, something that preserves um, artisan historic traits, such as craft distilling. And we need something that really intrigues this future generation of spirited professionals and creators and that promotes diversity and inclusion, you know, really just gives us all the things that we're all sitting in our offices or our spaces trying to figure out how to tackle. So I said, we need to create a residency program, you know, something that really educates people beyond technique, that really brings in history so that we have a a strong foundation and analysis of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I I took a leap and I went to a historic property that I had discovered in my research, and I said, you know what, you all should really consider partnering with me on this. You know, you have some parts that I need, I have some parts that you need, but together we could accomplish so much more. They love the concept. Uh, We actually started building the residency program last year before COVID and had so many grand plans of how we would execute. Um, And it has just really been beautiful. 
yeah, COVID happened and it, it kind of stalled us in execution, but we've still been keeping the energy of the programming alive. Um, I've been doing lectures, living room lectures with Historic Locust Grove, bringing in uh, spirited creators of color, highlighting them um, in their perspective. I recently did a chat with Shannon Mustafer. She's an African-American uh, rum aficionado. She's the first working bartender of color to write a book since Tom Bullock, a cocktail yeah. recipe book. And, you know, we need to have more intentional dialogue so that we can sit in the room, strategize, put everything out there, and figure out how we do this together. It no longer works to operate in silos or to be afraid. And my theme in working and how I move forward has been that I want to challenge not only myself but others to be a verb and not a noun. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, it's – I think back, you know, when I started talking about this, um, I thought back at all the incurrences I had um, in this area, but it was all such fragmentation. It's putting it all in some kind of a cohesive context altogether to get the real full impact of all of it. I mean, you pick out a little bit here, a little bit of experience there, a little bit of history here, but but getting it all, you know, in, in some sort of cohesive, easy, easy to access um, and understand format, right? Yes, and and just letting people understand that this is not an overnight one and done task. Like this will be years and ongoing and. You know, one person may pick up, I may be the person that passes the ball to someone else, but we have to keep the ball rolling. Uh, yeah. What I appreciated and what I honor so much about what Fawn Weaver did with the nearest brand is she was able to execute really delivering a piece of history that was not internationally known and making it so close to home that even you feel a part of that brand. And I think that that's the real power and impact of diversity and inclusion is that community building that takes place. And, and you're, tell me that how you perceive the, the main mechanism for, communing, uh, for building that community. What, what is the main mechanism for it? I mean, knowledge, certainly, but what else? I, I, I believe I believe that it it starts with history, and and I think that we've gotten a little too caught up in, uh, well, let's throw money at an issue, or you know, let me donate to all of these things. But then the conversation of ally and allyship comes into play, and it's like, how much of an advocate are you constantly just throwing money at an issue, but we're not addressing the source, we're not really getting to solving problems for the long term. I don't want my children in 10 years and in another generation to be dealing with the same issues that I've had to deal with. Right. It seems like, you know, I, I guess <laughs> when when everything started up again um, with the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, movement, um, I, I, I I was talking to a friend of mine, and I just dissolved into tears because I already lived this once, you know. And and I just the idea of having to go through the whole thing again was just awful to me. 
and how could how much further had we advanced? You know, I I think that I think that unfortunately, what the spirits industry has done that has presented more challenges in this context is being too afraid to move and too cautious of how they move versus really getting in front of the opportunity that this presents. It presents an opportunity to bring all of these minds together to get something done so that no one feels left out. Like, you know, last year the reoccurring theme was to talk diversity and inclusion, but no one was challenging what does that look like in action. Mm-hmm. And now so. you have uh, the only thing that I've seen that, you know, I Fawn Weaver again doing the Green and Jack initiative in Tennessee, that is a big deal. And why has it taken us this long to get there? We've really got to ask some hard questions in a respectful way, but that's the only way that the dialogue is going to happen. We can't, you know, just sit back and, fold our hands and hope for the best. Like, we're living in what I call a call-out culture, and brands are afraid of that, to be honest. No one Mm -hmm. wants to be called out, their brand attacked or, you know, and that's why everyone has to do the hard work, like analyzing and auditing their own internal structures. Like, what needs to change internally before we begin to work externally? Well, some things have changed, though, have they not? just most recently uh well you know i'm sorry to i'll just jump in here with my kind of thoughts on that i i think i i think what what has happened you know recently is it it has shown to me in a lot of ways a, a lot of ways you have um i have i have found that all the social media and everything out there, all the cameras and everything, what, what they have done is, is they have put a spotlight on things, you know, that, you know, people have known in communities for, for generations. And this, this people have grown tired of it, and it has trickled down into every single thing, and it's had people asking the hard questions of, like, okay, um, we're, we acknowledge there's been a systematic failure to black communities. How can we fix that now going forward? And I feel like everybody, you know, reacted, you know, everybody's trying to react and, and everyone's trying to be thoughtful about it and everything. But exactly what Andrea is saying is that there is – you know, there's got to be movement that that goes with it, and the and what she keeps referring to is Bon Weaver, founder of Uncle Nearest. Uncle Nearest is is, is created and honors uh, a former enslaved person who taught the Jack Daniel how to distill, and she resurrected that history and is bringing it to the forefront um, and talking about it. And you know, she's been a leader in the you know improving diversity. And again, ten years ago, we didn't have Bon Weaver in the spirits industry. Right. And going back to going back to the 1960s, you know, you can read in my book *Bourbon: The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of American Whiskey*. I have a I have a, almost a whole chapter dedicated to talking about how they targeted uh, black communities, and, mm-hmm. and it was very different. 
and the way they use the language they use in their internal memos, very, very different. Um, you know, so the, the change, the change to get to the point where we're having a conversation, I mean, it's taken a lot. And I still find that, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a white dude and <laughs> I'm not, I, I, I find that so many people are afraid to listen. I'm not even talking about having a conversation. I'm just talking about listening. And there's so many people who want to be defensive um, it, in all walks, in this, in this entire conversation, not just the spirits industry. But what, what, we, what I have witnessed in the last five years is that a lot of people in the spirits industry, and it's because we have a lot of youth, a lot of people in the spirits industry want to listen. And now I feel like Andrea, Fawn, uh, Jamar from Kobe, you know, we have a lot of people who are pushing the envelope forward, you know, and, and creating real action after years of trying to listen. And uh, I don't know how you feel about that, Andrea, but I, I'm, uh, I've got a few more gray hairs than most. <laughs> Uh, for being in my 40s, but but I, I've just I, I'm I'm encouraged in a lot of ways about what I am seeing in the spirits industry. There's a lot of work to do, but it's so much better than it was, and there is so much effort to try and make it better. Well, I mean, the demographic has definitely changed recently, hasn't it? I would say not necessarily that the demographics have changed. I, I just think that we know more because of access to technology and the marketing and promotions that we see. I, I think that we're challenging the perspective of what it means to be a spirit of consumer, what that visual is. And I'm glad to see more multicultural promotion within spirits because, you know, there was this notion forever that that was reserved for a specific class of person, a, a Caucasian male, um, a particular um, financial tier of person. And when I think about bourbon specifically and what I, and how I feel about it, bourbon is very blue collar. Like I remember when it was frowned upon, like you were considered low class in consuming bourbon. And now, it, you know, it has really risen back to I feel like its proper height and appreciation and affinity because it is such a relatable spirit uh, from production to how we see it from ground to glass. I, I think it's the most accessible uh, the the most inclusive spirit that I see. And when I think about how I share bourbon and, you know, just the way that I see it being allowing me to navigate the world the way that I have because spirits um, are such a, an important part of my life that, you know, I, it, it has afforded me the opportunity to sit down with people that maybe I wouldn't sit with. Fred and I were leaving a podcast experience one year, and we had dinner with some fans, and they openly told me they had never dined with a black person before. <laughs> I mean, and to me, I wasn't offended. It's like we, we've got to yeah, do well, what we've got it? to do to break barriers. We Sometimes... You know, we've got to let our own guard down so that we can do the work that maybe we weren't planning to do 
or open ourselves to new experiences and new perspectives like I can I carry a, a flask in my purse at all times because I want to share bourbon with people all the time and I always want to I always want to have something to break the ice with people I don't want them to be afraid of me because of what they don't know I, and I always want to be approachable you, you remember who was who the society lady who always had a flask in her purse though? Oh yeah, what was that? Who was that? <laughs> was one, was one, of, one, of, one of the leaders of Pittsburgh society. Yeah, I can't. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't wherever, Elsie, was it? Wherever, wherever she went, wherever she went, she had a flask just like you did. But, but she helped herself <laughs> to it through the evening. <laughs> I, had, I had a, I had a, I had a question, and I, because I, because I missed some of the conversation because I had to, had to answer the door, but. The the emergence of increased emergency of craft bourbons or craft spirits for that matter does does that mean the cost of entry into the business is lower and as a result it's easier for 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 people of color to enter? Absolutely not. Absolutely no. not. Okay. Um, I I would say I would say craft gives them more chance of equity. Okay. In the industry, but it's it's also not without its barriers. Like you, right. I tell anyone, and what I've learned, you have to learn a business inside and out before you enter. You know, right. you need to know your suppliers. You you need to know people that you need to know to help make that access and that entry point easier for you. And being a person of color, like you're already judge before you even get to the gate, not only yeah, by your credentials, okay. but okay. your skin color. Mm-hmm. Got it. Well, thank you. I was hoping I was hoping I might be right, but it turns out I'm wrong. Oh. I've, been wrong I've been wrong before. Well, so where, what are some of the things that you're actually doing, the physical web programs and whatnot? Besides, you do seminars and presentations, but what else do you do? And sharing your flask? (laughs) Yes. So I have uh, collaborative uh, physical group tours that I conduct with uh, Pegasus Transportation, and they're very bourbon and culture-infused. So I share and raise the narrative of African-American-owned food and beverage locations within the Louisville, Kentucky area, uh, sharing those narratives and stories that maybe you don't hear, you aren't aware of, and how they tie us into food and beverage. So I have those tours that are occurring monthly. Um, I am a consultant for Historic Locust Grove in Louisville, Kentucky, um, which was uh, – a residence of the Cron family, uh, very close ties to Lewis and Clark. And they have a working distillery, a farm distillery, on the site, and we're working on um, a residency program to train uh, minority and women talent that either want to pursue distilling or other areas of production relative to distilling multiple spirits, not just bourbon, but brandy, wine, um, they'll be able to come through that residency program and learn. Uh, farm to bottle is what I'm very calling important, the concept. Very important outreach. Yeah. Uh, that's it. Um, and, and I'll add, do you I'll have... add to, I'll, say, I'll say Andrea is actually pretty humble. 
But she's she's a bit of a <laughs> she's really star. quick as hell. She's she, smart. <laughs> she she she's a she's a brilliant personality. You know, You're telling she's, me she's uh, young, right? I'm not going to ask anybody yeah. their age because I don't want to tell mine. But but um she um she's been you know she's been on the you know she's done venues with like the in the likes of uh, you know the Foo Fighters you know at Bourbon and Beyond she was on the stage there. Uh, she is one of the personalities that people always uh, want to do a tasting with, and you know, in the trade, um, you know, she's she's got a great palate. And I had her on the, uh, my little uh, YouTube series, The Curation Desk, uh, last year. So she's um, she's she's one of those people you just kind of you know everybody wants to have a drink with and talk to, and you know, I think it's we're always curious about what's in the flask too. So that's yeah, the, right. <laughs> No, the, the, the does either one of you have do you have things on your website that you could uh, that you share some of this information with people wanting to get started on this uh, this voyage? Yes, I would say definitely approach uh, any dialogue with a person of color or someone with the opposite orientation of you to. Listen more than you speak um, to really, you know, seek out how you can tap into talent of color and be a strong ally and supportive. Fred has been amazing, um, not just as an ally, but as a friend. And, and, you know, I can go to him for guidance. So we need to have those, put our barriers down, like I said before, so that we can keep open communicative dialogue going so that we get to this better world together that we're all trying to get to. Um, I think it's important to um, provide creators of colors with opportunities for equity, not just diversity and inclusion, because that's not enough. That's not sufficient. Uh, We have to begin to really talk equity when it comes to people of color in the spirits industry. I have a question. I have a question for Fred before we before we sign off. Fred, mm. what did you really think about that bourbon that had peanuts in it? <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that screwball whiskey. Yeah, screwball whiskey. Uh, send us some of that. Jesus, oh. it was horrible. Andrew, have you had that? Have you had screwball? Yes. I've, on, I've yeah, they, only had it in ice cream. I've never tasted it in meat. <laughs> Maybe it I would work it was totally ice appropriate. Yes, I thought it was totally appropriate and as a boozy ice cream. Uh-huh. I don't know if I would fancy it that much neat. One of the guys had the bottle, and they're like, yeah, hey, taste this live. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and Andrea, I thought I was going to hurl right there on camera. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what I I, wondered, I was wondering if if they intended it to be a joke. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, I hope so. I sure I sure hope so. Well, actually, everybody after that review came out, people were very like, "Oh no, you got to put it on ice cream. You got to put it on this." And so I think it's almost like a syrup. You know, they almost uh-huh. want to you know pitch it as a syrup. But hey, I if if I'm going to put whiskey on a label. I want to drink whiskey, you know. (laughs) Call me me old-fashioned. 
you and I are on the same page. Well, we've gotten some funny stuff, you know, because, well, of course, people send you stuff all the time, too. But um, the latest we got was um, this really tall glass bottle of, of a, a lady with big boobs from the Oh. Naked from the waist up. <laughs> oh my! <Wow. laughs> it, was, it was yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, what's that brand again? Uh, you want some of that? What is that brand? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm curious. I'm curious. Wow! wow. It's Vavoom, Vavoom vodka. Huh? Vodka. Okay. Don't, don't even think about. It. That's a violation of the federal it. code. Uh, it's actually good vodka, which is a bit, so, but, vodka, well. You know, it's great talking to you guys, and um, yeah, and I mean, I, I I wish you both well, and I. It seems like it's working for you, Andrea. Huh? You're making headway. And I'm not. Even if it doesn't, I'm not much of a quitter. I believe in finishing anything good. I start. Good. And Fred's no quitter either, are you, Fred? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I uh, I believe I, I've, I've from the moment I was um, in school, you know, I've always believed in just treating people fairly and equally, and and that's what this really comes down to is when. But we start really kind of pulling back on the threads and seeing um, how people are treated. It just pisses me off. And I'll do everything within my power and what I can, you know, to change that. And a lot of things that I do are never public, closed doors. I'm just trying to help. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Andrea means the world to me. And, uh, you know, you all should really... Well, thank you for introducing her to us. Absolutely. So we're the resource now. And, and thank you all so much for having story. me on. Thank well, listen, so this is our treat, Andrea. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and so as I said, I have a new resource. I think that's wonderful. Well, you two take care now, and um, thank you for participating, and I will email you when it's there, and uh, we'll go from here. Ever upward, huh? That sounds, sounds good. Be safe. Okay. And for our final segment, and we're going to talk to Luke Batamoro. Um, he tells us what that means in Italian, his name. Um, I would suggest, actually, that you go on your computer and go to this website. You can actually see what we're talking about uh, with Vavuma. Vavoom, just imagine what that must be. Vavoom vodka. Well, anyhow. Are we going to play it or are we just going to talk about it? You can play it, but I, I, I really want the listeners to get a visual image. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Luke Bacaloro, I'll tell you, your package <laughs> certainly got our attention. <laughs> it did, right? Uh, oh, boy, it didn't it? We can't, put it, we can't put it down. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, uh, listeners, um, has produced Vavum Vodka. And if you could not tell from from the name of the vodka, um, just think of Vavum, and, and you'll probably get an image of a, a, a busty woman 
um, totally hand-blown by artists in Milan, <laughs> Italy. And it's, it's an attention grabber for sure, Luke. <laughs> what gave you the idea? Uh, you know, I was walking around the liquor store uh, going to a party, and there was just not any bottles that amused me and that were different. And so I decided to make my own. <laughs> no, no. Let, let, let's, let's fill in a little bit of a gap here. Because you said you're now in, you're in Utah today. But wh- where do you really hang your hat? Are you American or are you Italian or are you both? Or yes, what's the I'm deal? Italian. I'm Italian. My uh, my heritage is Italian. Uh, my my family. Most of my family lives in Brooklyn, New York, um, uh-huh. but I live out out in Utah with. Uh, oh, so you live out there? With my okay. immediate family. Yeah, yeah. Okay, my because... uh, my dad's side of the family is from Brooklyn, and uh, my mom's actually from Australia. Oh, well, yeah, okay, what part? That's all right. Brisbane, Australia. Yeah, Where? We, live, Australia. We, we live there, too. Oh, you do? We, no, no we, we, did. Did. we did. Oh, you yeah, did. Yeah, we lived in Australia, yeah. Um, what part of Australia? Uh, she lived in Brisbane. Oh, okay. Called yeah. Winnemucca, I think. Or not Winnemucca. Uh, I can't remember. All of Australia is so hard to pronounce. Yeah. yeah, not Winnemucca. <laughs> We would go out and visit a, a spot out there, um, Malulaba, on the Gold Coast. Okay, lot, got it, got a it. Lot. Yeah. Funnily, funnily enough, we we met someone who had a macadamia ranch in that in that vicinity. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. It's yeah interesting. Place. He was an interesting guy. He uh, in a place called Byron Bay, which is. Not not too far down the road from surface paradise. Hmm. Any, well, it's, anyway. it's people think of of, um, uh, of them as, as from Hawaii, and in fact, they're really Australian, native to Australia. Hmm. Anyhow, all right, back to this this vodka, which, by the way, is is a very good vodka. Um, I mean, the the intention getter is, of course, the bottle. How tall is that? Uh, the bottle is 18 and a half inches tall, and I made that the height for a reason. Why? Uh, my glass manufacturer, Bruni Glass, which is in Milan, Italy, they make the Crystal Head uh, bottle as well. You're probably familiar with that. No, I don't but, know that uh, one either. I, you haven't seen that one? Dan no, it's a brand. Yeah, it's Crystal Head Vodka. How oh, I never um, heard of it. Actor Dan Aykroyd. That's his okay. vodka. It's in the shape. Oh, of okay. But anyhow, I made it that tall because we're a top shelf vodka. Got um, it. You can't put it on a regular liquor shelf. Is fourteen and a half inches. You can be that tall, uh-huh. and we're top shelf. And so the one liter the, is 18 and a half inches tall. Got it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Now, you were introduced to us as a liquor entrepreneur. 
explain a little bit more okay. about what that means. Well, I come from uh, internet marketing. That was my world. I, I got it. Okay. If you've heard of CBD, CBD oil, I was the oh, first okay, one to sure. put that online back in 2014. And being the entrepreneur that I was, I saw an opportunity in the alcohol world to be different. And that's kind of where it all sprouted. Now, what well, now did we, you got, do? We, got, we got Utah into the equation. But, but, yeah, we so, got Utah into the equation. I, I grew up I grew up LDS um, until I was, you know, around 16. I mean, I'm still LDS. Um, you know, it's very conservative out here. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm a, a Utah guy that produced an Italian sculpture that is in the shape of a woman, and it's obviously alcohol, and that's not the norm for Utah. But, uh, with you know, with my parents being from Brooklyn, New York, and Brisbane, Australia, I'm kind of a, you know, a traveler. So I've, right, you know, right, I've been right. all around. But... Uh, it's been a really fun project. It's been my passion project. Uh, it's, you know, well, it's been, one of the things. You've been turning this over in your head for a long time, have you? You know, it's kind of sat there for a while. I, I designed it. I actually designed the bottle seven times. I first designed it on a program called CAD. And yeah, sure, 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 sure. Yeah, we couldn't get the bottle to be lifelike. It looked, it just didn't look right. Uh-huh. And so then I decided, okay, I'm going to learn how to sculpt out of clay so I can sculpt this bottle. And I, I teamed up with, the, with a few really great artists. That, that is what they do is uh, model humans out of clay. And so we modeled the bottle. And we then put it into a CAD program and then produced the bottle. And as you know, it's a, you know, it's a stamped bottle, just like every, every, uh, every bottle. But we had to make a special mold. And, yeah, it's been, it's been a really fun process for me, the learning aspect. That's just the bottle. And the vodka, as well. Now the vodka. So the vodka. Did I read it correctly? It's made in Iowa, the home of all good yes. vodkas. Well, you know, <laughs> it, I I chose that because of the corn out there. Got it. Okay. Well, have you heard of Tito's vodka? Tito's yes. Is yeah, Tito's is in corn. Austin. Yeah. So one of the we get the ingredients from the exact same place that Tito's does. Okay. It's, you know, a big tanker uh, goes to Tito's, and then it goes to our distillery. And uh, we we chose that for a variety of reasons. And the process that we have is a proprietary process that involves 
coconut husks that are carbon activated to filter the vodka. So it it brings out that taste that you get with no other vodka. Uh-huh. The smoothness. Uh, so it's the certainly end. smooth, that's for sure. Yeah, no, very smooth. I, I spent a lot of years. Where does the coconut fit in? Did I miss it? So it's, 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 so it's not flavored with coconut, but the coconut it makes a good filter, yeah. Yeah, it makes a great filter. It purifies it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's um, carbon activated, and so it, you're exactly right. It's, uh, it's a great filter. Um, now, did you ever deal before in your previous careers, did you deal with liquor at all? In my previous careers, no. No, I did not. Um, my background is chemical engineering. Um, so I dealt with a variety of different supplements uh, from all sorts. And so, but the alcohol, no, I had not dealt in the distillation of alcohol. Well, I, I was just wondering, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get inside your head to figure out how this product came to be. I mean, it's certainly a startler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and, uh, and, and it's first of all, it's it's um, it stands out. You're correct. It certainly stands out. Um, it's it's pricey. I mean, it's it's. I have here the retail price at just under a hundred and seventy dollars a bottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, being you have your your eye on on a market. And what is that market? In particular, what is my target market? Or yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, who, who spends that for a bottle of vodka, for example? Well, our customers are a wide variety, from CEOs and doctors to uh, school teachers to. Uh, you know, young young girls and guys in their 20s. It, it appeals to a multiple level of, a, of an audience. You know, being a sculpted piece of glass that is a woman, it just appeals on so many different levels. So our, tar- our target market is, is everybody. So, 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 a lot of your customers are people who have bars, cocktail bars, or are they you know, stocking no, their no, home liquor cabinet? Yes, yes, home bars, wet bars, uh, things of that nature. You know, as you guys said, it's a great conversation piece. Oh yeah. You, you go, you go to a party and you show up with that vodka. You know, you're you're going to have a great conversation. And, uh, you know, everyone's going to have a little life fun. And soul, right? Yeah, yeah. So but, our, our, our focus is the home bar direct to consumer. Okay. And, and so, now, you've built, 
you've built sort of a community around this as well. I want you to talk about this is part of your Stabella uh, collection, which means um, be well, be cool, be happy, Bella well. Yeah, it's good. It means be beautiful, be you. So It's beautiful as well, Bella. Mm-hmm. Bella. Yeah, Stabella. Stabella, which is also feminine, so, um, yeah, so are you targeting women customers? You know, we're not particularly targeting women customers, but in society, there seems to be a stigma today that women can't be both physically beautiful, highly intelligent, and successful all at once. And so... With our Sta Bella, it's the empowerment movement that we've created. It's, it, it basically gives um, the, a woman to, to maximize her potential to be beautiful and to be themselves and to, to declare their independence from society's view and society's way of how alcohol um, has kind of worked in the past. It's generally a man's world. Um, You you go to a bar or a restaurant and generally the man would order. So we're, we're taking the power back. We're on so many, you know, so many different levels. Does that answer your question? Sure, I'm just trying to to find out. I mean, you've put together a total idea, uh, a real package, marketing package surrounding this Bavum vodka. And I'm just trying to get get you to tell our listeners about it. So I'm pulling out pieces. Um, I mean, you have photo reviews. You have um, news, a newsletter. Talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, which part, the news or the the reviews? Well, I'm talking the about the community. You, you're building oh, a community news. around this vodka. Mm-hmm. Is that the, your purpose? That is. That is my purpose. It is to show to everybody that you can be beautiful, you can be you, and you don't have to you can women shouldn't have to sacrifice beauty to be successful and they should be able to be themselves uh we have a whole clothing line that we came out with called the Stop Bella yeah, tell us about that. I mean, there's so much going on in this website. Yeah, there is. There's a lot going on. Um, the Sabella collection uh, was also designed by me, and we, we're we not done. We, well, we've done dresses. We've done our Sabella intense workout apparel. We have shirts. We have hats. And then we have accessories, phone cases, um, and bags. Um, I put, I'm putting that, the iconic VV 
on products that I feel that will work for our current and our ongoing efforts in empowering women to be themselves. Okay. Um, how about giving us your website so that um, our listeners can explore that? Excuse me? The Which part? Your website. Most okay. of this information is on your website. Yeah, most all of the information is on the website. A lot more is in the works. The There's a lot of news on the website of where we've been. And um, for every bottle sold, we donate $2 to Women Empowering Women of America. Um, all the all the you know all the information for the filtration and how the vodka was made and is on the website. We're doing a lot more of how the bottle came about and being made in Milan, Italy. So there's there's a lot of information on the website for your viewers to to navigate through. Is there any particular and is there any particular part you would like me to go over? Well, we're kind of in, we're kind of intrigued as to what countries would be would be the place where you have the most uptake, I guess. Does, well, we started in the United States. Doesn't seem like it would be Italy, but um, you know, we are actually getting a lot of attention from Italy. Oh, okay. A lot of attention. They love it. They love it. Uh, so, you know, we have we get the bottles, we bring them over here, we fill them, and then we send them back. It's interesting. So, um, but the main country right now is the United States and Canada, uh, parts of Europe. Actually, we've we've started to go into Russia, and but yeah, Italy. I've taken a very big interest in it. They love it. They absolutely love it. There's there's not an Italian vodka. <laughs> no, so I guess, guess there isn't. You know, they're, no. they're taking they're taking some pride in the glass being produced in their country. Italy makes the finest glass in the world. Uh, so. Well, I mean, I think that's very interesting. It's, you know, vodka has been a canvas before um, in in terms of uh, being able to, the product is being really created in the marketing itself. And it's been very successful in, in with some other brands of vodka. And I can see that happening to this too. I mean, I'm, I'm actually planning on renting out my bottle. <laughs> You're going to rent it out. I'm going to rent it out because... Have a date, have a date with Baboon Vodka. The what? You're going to have a date. Someone's going to have a date with Baboon Vodka, like an auction. <laughs> like when you auction someone off on a, for a date. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there are all these people doing the cock 
cocktail diaries on Instagram. People are posting all those um, pictures of their their creative cocktails, and I can just see how pr- appropriate and a prop this would be for one of the for, for their Instagram accounts. And so yeah. I'm planning on renting it out. <laughs> yeah. If you want a cut, get in on the on the ground floor. <laughs> yeah, our, our customers love to post with our bottle. Uh, to share with their friends because it is a great conversation piece. It is. The attention to detail that went into creating the bottle. It's very, very finely done. I mean, it could, I just want to make sure that people understand that they can see it on your website, but if you hold it in your hand, you'll realize what an accomplished piece of art it actually is too. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. So um, it's, there's nothing um, um, hyped about it. I mean, it's really a, f- a fine uh, piece of blown glass. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and um, I'm, I'm interested in what happens down the line, so I hope you'll keep us posted on that because I'd like to see it take off and see where it goes. Yeah, we sure will. We will okay. keep you posted. Um, what do, you, what do you think about him getting in touch with the Noninos? Like what, doing what? I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they, maybe they'd be interested in working, in working with him. Yeah. Do you know the Noninos, the group of people? No, I do not. Well, they're they're um, a totally woman-owned company. It's the leading uh, producer of grappa in the world, and it's run by a mother and three sisters. And they're in Friuli, okay. Italy. And I just, I mean, I just thought it would be interesting if you could work some, some deal out with them. But anyhow, sure. that's, we, we can't really get into that right now. Um, but um, get back to us another time and, and, and we can give you the appropriate information. So, Luke, you, you yeah. have a whole new thing going on here. Um, what does Bato Loro mean? Loro is they, them, yours. Mm-hmm. What does Bato Loro mean? Your Bato name. Bato Loro means um, gold. It means uh, basically a jeweler. Um, oh, really? The exact, yeah, it's, it, it's, that's what Interesting. it means. Well, Anyhow, I wish you much success with this, and it's like another presence, a presence in your um, bar area. <laughs> it's realistic. A great yeah. job, and um, I wish you much success with it. Thank you for talking to us. Well, thank you for having me today. I oh, really yeah. appreciate it. Fun. We've had a lot of fun. We we showed the bottle too. We've been skyping with our relatives around the world, and we've shown them the bottle. So it's great. So thank you again. Well, and thank you, and Peter, thank you as well. And we will talk again. Okay, great. And, uh, thank you. Bye, bye, Lou. Just by the by, this this fascinating bottle. Hans making me give it away. I'm, I'm not allowed to. I'm not allowed to keep it, even though I would like to have it on my pillowcase. Vavum is worth, worth exploring, 
And sweetheart, you don't have anything to say? No, I mean, I think no, I mean, okay. You said it all in, in the interview, you're absolutely right. And we will see you for another interview on on the menu radio, same time, same place next week. And until then, bye bye.